escape from plan A. There's been a lot of talk about the, the effect of automation, and some folks I've talked to, you know, sitting in your chair, have suggested solutions to automation, including restriction of automation itself. Tucker Carlson suggested on my show, for example, that he wanted to actually legislate away self-driving trucks. You don't make any of those sorts of sweeping pronouncements about limiting technology, really, in your book. No, I'm very pro-progress, generally. Um, you know, I, I think there might be isolated instances where you need to at least try and buy some time, uh, because, and I, you know, I talk about truckers a fair amount in my book, where uh, being a truck driver is the most common job in 29 states. Uh, three and a half million truck drivers, 94% men, average age 49. Uh, and so, if you can foresee that you might displace 10, tens or hundreds of thousands of these truck drivers over a particular period of time, you might want to slow that down because you might need to buy yourself time to, to help assimilate that adjustment. But generally speaking, trying to uh, just like stop automation is a loser over time because you might even be able to like stick your finger in one part of the dam, but then something else is going to break anyway. It's like, uh, you know, like if we tried to automate a way to say, hey, you can't automate truck, uh, truck driving, then there'd be some other part of the economy where you'd look at it and say, well, I guess we're going to automate away the warehouse workers. We're going to automate away the dock workers. Like you can't stop it all. Okay, welcome to another episode of, I guess this is a crossover episode we have this week of Neighbor Science Podcast, uh, friends of ours. I guess we've uh, we met each other really through a mutual friend, I think, uh, Trevor uh, Beaulieu over at uh, Champagne Shark. So Chris Nivens and uh, Ryan Salisbury over at uh, Neighbor Science. What's up, guys? Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Uh, good, good. It's it, we've been talking about this for a while, so pretty excited that we're actually uh, recording this. Um, I've got Comrade Jay with me. Jay, Jay Krishna, what's going on, man? Hey, not bad. How are you guys doing? I just wanted to say that I love that we have two token white guys on a mostly Asian <laughs> podcast. Although Chris is kind of like he's a big quarter Asian by technical crossover well, of yeah, my well, own kind. <laughs> well, it depends from which, you know, feed you're getting this cuz if it's the other if it's their feed then we're the two token Asian guys. That's not politically <laughs> so it just, it just works out. Let's just <laughs> agree that we're all tokens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone's a token. Uh, and this is teen. Um, yeah, so uh, you know, we've been looking for some, you know, you guys cover a lot of you you guys want to just do a little intro to neighbor science like for for plan A listeners and kind of what you guys are all about. Sure. Uh, yeah, this is this is Ryan talking. Um, yeah, we, we're a podcast about political economy and anime. Um, so we talk about like uh, business stuff, uh, political theory, uh, economic theory, and uh, then we make connections to different animes that we like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you guys get just like pretty deep into it. I've been really enjoying the, the pod. I listened to the one recently about the uh, the VOC, the Dutch East. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's a good one. Yeah. Man. Yeah, that was a good one. I, I really rec- for for the Plan A listeners. I, I really recommend just kind of subscribing and, and and listening to it. Really good. Uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. Very anti-colonialist. I like it. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, the, the one reason I liked it <laughs> is that even people that are critical about certain industries, we don't really know mm-hmm. about the colonial history. So I think the first thing mm-hmm. I listened to was the Dutch East Indian Company and like the bullion system, and I was like, oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. And also the air. Even though you never really said like colonialism is bad, it's very clear that you're like colonialism mm-hmm. is obviously so bad. I don't have to say that. And here's yeah. all the shitty <laughs> things about colonialism in a political yeah, economy perspective, which is kind of cool. And which, mm-hmm. which is the first time I was like, oh, these guys are like, maybe they're actually Asian because that's how we would talk about <laughs> colonialism. Like, obviously, the British are pieces of shit. 
obviously, mm. like, the Dutch Indonesians were a piece of shit. We don't really need to say yeah. it. It's just, like, obvious. I wouldn't want to live in a world where I have to explain that having millions of slaves and doing multiple genocides is bad. Right. <laughs> you would right, think, right. right? Like, oh. Yeah. Right. But unfortunately, we do live in that world. Yes, <laughs> so, yes, we do. Yeah. And then I thought the last one about, you know, tea, particularly. I mean, you basically talk about stimulants. We talk about, like, tea yeah. and uh, coffee. And it was like Tea being the only stimulant that we do. Yeah. <laughs> right, but I just thought it was funny. It was like, oh, me and tea, we could totally probably just be sitting, eating, and talking about tea and coffee for a whole day anyway. So, yeah. So I, was did like, you, I have not listened to that one yet, but did you guys get into the, the like, the whole um, Nazi meth epidemic? At all? We kind of touched on amphetamines toward the end. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was actually used on, on both sides of the war. Um, American mm -hmm. soldiers were given stimulants as well. Um, yeah. It was mm -hmm. Benzedrine, I think. I think no. I, I first learned about it under Metal Gear Solid. I'm not even good at Metal Gear Solid. It was like, oh, you can drug them up so you can start shooting people <laughs> in a straight line. That's great. <laughs> Oh, I did not know that was meth. Oh, my bad. Yeah, some kind of amphetamine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You could. I think you could smoke cigarettes in that one too. But, That's right. Um, and smoking cigarettes can calm yeah. you down. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, everyone should go check that out. Um, and uh, yeah, so we've been uh, we we've been looking for a topic that we could kind of like you know mutually pod about. And uh, Andrew Yang uh, has outdone himself. I feel like he has. Uh, somehow, of all the uh, candidates that have announced, he's announced, um, I feel like he has, he's the one that I think has really, um, uh, really, really grasped onto online culture. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the same way, in, in a similar way, I think that uh, in some respects that, that Trump did in 2015, 2016, mm -hmm. um, you got the Yang gang. Uh, you've got a meme-based, uh, you got a meme complex sprouting around him. You've got the repurposing of Pepe with thousand-dollar bills all around him. Um, yeah, he's the he's new president of memes. People. He's the new president, <laughs> president of, of all memes. He's speaking to people. Pre yeah, uh, king of all memes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's surprising to me as um, he's got a very similar background to me. I think his parents came from Taiwan He's, um, mm -hmm. you know, he, let's make no mistake about it. He's a very, you know, he's an elite guy. He went to Exeter. He went to Brown. He went to Columbia for law school. Very similar background uh, to, to a lot of people that, I guess that's not usually the background that I think that I thought would lead to this kind of um, traction. And so uh, I thought maybe we could just talk about Yang for a sec, why we think he's become quite popular online, what he's about and, uh, you know, is he the real deal or, or is there, you know, why, what policies is he pushing and are, are they good policies, I think, for those of us on the left? So, yeah, we have. I actually, yeah. uh, I, I found a little bit more about his background. Um, he's, uh, I think he's second gen. His, both of his parents were immigrants. Yeah. So he's first, first child born in the U.S. That's second gen, right? Yeah. Second gen. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they both met while studying at UC Berkeley and. Uh, his dad was like a some kind of engineer at GE, and his uh, oh and and IBM, and his mom was a statistician, and then be, became an artist later. And um, Yang himself went to Phil Phillips Exeter Academy, which is a boarding school in New Hampshire, uh, which 
the earliest data I could get was from 2005, but uh, the tuition then was uh, $33,000 a year, just to give you an idea of like what kind of uh, economic strata you have to be in to go there. Um, mm -hmm. And then for college, he got a, an econ degree from Brown and a JD from Columbia. Okay, so I mean, he's best known for his universal basic income platform. And uh, yep. I don't, I mean, I think a lot of people have heard of UBI. People don't know a ton about it. Uh, they don't, you know, it sounds, it sounds uh, pretty radical. It sounds pretty, I think, I think mm -hmm. that's part of the, the hook that, that Andrew Yang brings is it, is, is it sounds like a truly uh, radical type of platform, I think, to people who aren't terribly familiar with UBI. Um, mm -hmm. Does, who has the best background on what he's actually proposing? I have the, I have the basics of the freedom dividend and all that and the thousand a month, but who's got the, who's got the real knowledge here? Well, I, I don't think there's too much. I mean, I just, I'll just talk about the universal basic income in general. Yeah. Just yeah. kind of like the history, mm -hmm. because <clears throat> really it's all started from a pilot project that gave it the most exposure from Manitoba. And I guess me being Canadian, Manitoba is a pretty isolated province. It's uh, very First Nations, uh, significant mm -hmm. minority groups, especially in the small little town that it started. And it was called Mincom at the time, which at first I thought was a dirty joke, but it isn't. <laughs> and in this project, it was a Dr. Forget. How the fuck is her name Dr. Forget? I don't know. But she's a Manitoba professor. In <laughs> Wait, are you serious? Sciences. Yeah. <laughs> she was the one that did most of the research in it. And this pilot project didn't have any particular emphasis on saving the national debt or creating efficiencies. It just wanted to see kind of what the outcome would be for these small communities in northern Manitoba and northern Canada in general, how they would be able to survive instead of like creating all this infrastructure. Would it actually create an incentive for the economy and things like that? So it was a very like open-ended uh -huh. kind of a pilot project, which is, which is really cool in my opinion. That's how research should be done, right? How to make people's lives better. Right. Go Canada. You did something right, right for once. And so Dr. Hey. Forget just kind of mentions like, okay, what she noticed is that people didn't stop working. They still worked 40 hours a week. And that was really significant because you're in this, you know, in these like small areas where there's only so much work to go around anyway. And then she did notice the difference is that women were definitely in an empowered sector of this um, receiving this benefit because they would just take care of their kids more and so it was dropped before they could do any thorough studies about like crime rate and do these kids go to school because they were supported by their parents but uh, it kind of pointed towards that direction okay okay yeah. that's really interesting and then uh i don't know and so for I guess for uh, Yang, it's kind of a different perspective is that he does want his... So, you know, the thing about Yang is that he has human-centered capitalism or person-centered right. capitalism. And his freedom dividend is just something that is $1,000 to every single person just for living in this great country mm -hmm. of America. And of course, from now on, we're going to call it Yang Bucks because I think Yang Bucks yep. is pretty awesome. Ebony. <laughs> and... Uh, and then also for him, his is key, I guess he read and he's met Martin Ford, who wrote about automation and specifically about automation changing the whole world. And we have to think about mm -hmm. making the world work differently. And so it's partly for Yang to say that, hey, we're going to start automating the world. Uh, specifically, he looks at truckers 
And he's done lots mm-hmm. of really interesting interviews with truckers, and he would talk to them. And he'd just be like, oh, so once you're at a job, what are you going to do? He's like, and then they'd just be like, apparently I'm supposed <laughs> to be a computer scientist. He's like, oh, I don't think mm-hmm. that's going to work out well for you because you're like super white, super old, and super like dependent on this trucking job right. because you're kind of useless in this modern economy. I mean, he says it in nicer words. And so he's like, okay, this $1,000, mm-hmm. it's a good Band-Aid solution, and it can help out in other ways. And then anyone who listens to Yang in general, he's all, he's very much, like, <laughs> he's the most... If anyone knows a management consultant and how they're <laughs> yep. kind of, like, full of shit, <laughs> he kind of has, like, he's not 100% that way, but he, like, sneaks mm. it in there, right? He always sneaks it in. He's always, like, he's got to <laughs> right. build efficiencies. He's got to build efficiencies there all over the team. And, like, as a Canadian, we're all about public sector having more efficiencies, which usually means all kinds of... But what do you, what do you guys think of the... Yeah. What, what do you guys think of the... I mean, automation is his setup, right? Uh, that's how he kind of tees up the whole discussion. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I, I've been hearing more... Robot immigration... <laughs> I've been hearing even more lately about how like uh, a lot of this stuff is marketing, like especially the self-driving car stuff. Um, like all of the like heads of those projects will straight up admit like, yeah, there's no fucking way that we're going to have fully automated cars yeah. within like even 30 years. Like, but they need the they need the venture capital to keep coming. So they just keep saying, yeah. like, oh, no. Uh, yeah, it's right around the corner. Of course. Right. I just want to say I'm really annoyed at Reddit because like there's all these Reddit boys that are just like we're gonna have self-automated yeah, cars all those in five, ten guys. years all the fucking yeah. time and I <laughs> yes all those futurology guys and they fucking suck. I was gonna say like I lived in Seattle for several several years and like the Amazon crowd there and the um all the tech people there were all about the futurology and everything the self-driving cars. And they would just never shut up about it. And like it never happened in the last 10 years. Yeah. It's just Facebook and job losses and self checkouts at the grocery store, yeah, which are yeah. huge pieces of shit and still yeah. require employees. I'm with, I, <laughs> mergers and acquisitions. I'm with you guys on that. I'm with you on that. I, I, I think yeah. that the, the whole automation thing, I mean, there's no data for like there's, there isn't, yeah. it actually hasn't happened. And I think Yang is pretty, I mean, he'll concede that fact. Like most job loss that we've seen has really come through deindustrialization, not not automation, meaning that, you know, we're still, those. there's still people doing those jobs. They're just doing them overseas. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. the four, yeah, exactly. you know, he, he points to 4 million, you know, industrial jobs lost in the Midwest. But I don't think he's ever, you know, said that that was due to, you know, robots. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think with the self-driving car thing, yeah, it's just a really well marketed trope that I think most people yeah. will accept. Yeah, I mean, all, it's all but I've about not... how like all these jobs are going to be lost. We're essentially just saying like uh, the technology for this uh, will likely be possible. Therefore, it will definitely happen, and those jobs will go away. Yeah, that's the conclusion everyone drew from it. Not like oh, it's possible that we could automate all these things, which like people have been saying since the fucking sixties. I was just going to say, like it's utopians like utopians that were yeah, like, we right. should do this so that we can Even eliminate jobs because having jobs sucks. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. So one thing that I always find interesting is that the articles that are critical about automation happening and taking away jobs, like which are good criticisms, they usually come from either like Vox, a very neoliberal perspective, mm-hmm. or they come from like a right wing perspective. It's like, no, as you keep on keeping mm-hmm. the free market and the invisible hand will spread <laughs> the labor 
evenly across the country and the world, and there will be jobs for everybody when you start deregulating things. So I always find the criticisms kind of sad. No, but I think like even the Davos set knows like they've got to get away from you know the free market fundamentalist rhetoric, and that's I guess what why is and why is he doing this? Like why now? Why how does a thousand dollars a month? Uh, in any way protect us against, you know, automated job loss. If you lose, and the whole premise being like, if you lose your job to a robot, you probably can't be retrained for something else. So we're going to need to give you a non-living wage. Right, right. Um, what, like, it, to me, I feel like uh, there is a general, tra- maybe Yang is sort of like uh, pioneering this, but I feel like he's been able to take what is fundamentally a very, it's both, to me, very neoliberal and also conservative. Neoliberal in the sense that, you know, this, uh, you know, instead of giving people uh, or instead of doing any sort of like social spending, uh, democratic control over social spending, where we sort of have a large program meant to sort of transform the infrastructure, transform the institutions around us, mm-hmm. just give people uh, a thousand yang bucks and set them on their merry way and let the, you know, let the market absorb that. And so that's very neoliberal in, my, in, in that sense, and, and, and conservative in the sense that the whole point of doing that is going to be funded through, uh, from his, I think on his uh, webpage, you know, he's saying we're going to fund it through uh, a VAT tax, value-added tax, which in some sense, I think, basically amounts to a regressive federal sales tax. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, more, more or less, mm-hmm. right? Sales taxes are always regressive in the sense that they... The you know the, the the burden of it tends to fall more on the uh, lower lower income. Uh, yeah, the way I explain it is, um, if you are a poor person, you spend a hundred percent of your income on consumption. I mean, like yeah. obviously, like yeah. rent doesn't have sales tax, so like that's not completely accurate. But like to contrast, if you're a rich person, most of your money is going towards investments, and those are not taxed with mm-hmm. sales tax. So yeah. A poor person pays a much higher proportion yeah. of their income so, so just in for, like, sales the tax listeners. than a rich person does, which is why it's regressive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and all the indexes that follow, like inflation mm-hmm. and whatever consumption, they always really suck. Even, you know, like the Canadian government agrees that how we follow consumption in Canada does not really help figure out why people feel like they're getting mm-hmm. poorer. And they definitely right. are getting poorer. It's because they don't really show that lower income people they spend their money on food and blah blah and you mm-hmm. know things just to get through the day but people in the higher classes even middle class because they have this excess money basically to spend on whatever they want mm-hmm. they're feeling a little bit better except we're kind of slowly crunching yeah. so i guess for listeners that don't know andrew yang that well so we just like mentioned he's kind of a he's scared about automation he wants to give Yang Bucks $1,000, $12,000 for every American citizen. And so for those that are wondering, well, how is he going to pay for this? Well, he's going to add a value sales tax, which you just mentioned. And uh, I guess as you guys just mm-hmm. mentioned, it's a yep. regressive tax. Is, does he have any other plans on how well, to Well, that fund? and then the classic, which is the, you know, it's it's really, me- and this is, this is, I think, the core of UBI. Uh, since it's, it's, I think it used to be called in America... Uh, the negative income tax, which was a very serious proposal back I yeah, think, in the early that's 80s. Yeah, a slightly different one because uh, UBI, yeah. basically everyone gets the same amount, yeah. but a negative income tax would be uh, people who make below a certain amount um, get you know, the, the income. And it's sort of like uh, scaled so that you know, it, it works like an income tax, but in reverse. Like 
you know, you would get money from the government like, instead of paying you it. You can actually your get, take your tax credit and get it paid out to you, right? And mm -hmm. but the idea back then really was that we yeah. would we would fund a negative income tax through, uh, you know, efficiencies in the government. Meaning we would we would we would do away with a lot of the uh, federal welfare programs and and direct social spending and just it just make the government cut a check. Yeah, because I think a lot of them were proposed like in the 60s and 70s, and they were mainly proposed by like right-wing libertarian type guys. Right. Yeah. That's, yes. Milton Friedman is mm -hmm. probably the biggest name out of for sure, and he's Chicago school thought. I mean, everyone knows where he stands on welfare. Yes. Uh, he thinks we should throw it out of a helicopter. Helicopter money. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> the idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But do, do, do any of you actually have any like positive, I mean, is there a positive side to UBI that you do support? Oh, I mean, I think UBI is a great idea. I just think that it needs to be an amount of money that people can actually live on without having a job, which is like supposed to be the entire point. And that also we shouldn't give it to Jeff Bezos because he has plenty of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you know, there's, there's more, most likely when a UBI gets enrolled in most Western countries, people that are stupid rich are yeah. not really going to be getting that money per se. But then the way the taxes work, that their kids and other people in these high income households are those and like i don't know if, if anyone knows rich people there's certain rich people there that they make mm -hmm. like twenty thousand dollars on paper but they got yep. like 10 million dollars in assets all of these people are gonna yep. get those twelve thousand dollars for sure because nobody really knows what the fuck is going on with their mm -hmm. state of financial affairs yep. except for yep. their accountant and their lawyer yeah so i, I have some positive things mm -hmm. to say about ubi and like for anyone who knows, I just I don't know anything about this world outside of healthcare. But one thing, and this kind of goes to the neighborhood science mm -hmm. about how money doesn't yeah. really mean anything. I mean, for me, money, you know, you buy it because things cost money. And I think for most of Plan A, that's what they see. But as I've been like growing, mm -hmm. like figuring shit out, money is more about mm -hmm. social relationships. So I'm coming mm -hmm. from like a social scientist view and it's profoundly impactful. So one of my areas of research is the social determinants of health. And one part of one, one tool mm -hmm. we use is called the Gini coefficient. And that basically just measures like right. how equal societies are. And lo and behold, the more equal a society mm -hmm. is, the more healthy it is. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's such a crazy thing to say. Like, who would have thought <laughs> the more equal a society is, the healthier it is. But what, what's kind of crazy is that, you know, you would just assume people get healthier because they have more access to the materialist things that make you healthy. Like you go to a good school or you have money to spend for a babysitter or you have money to spend right, you know, on immunization. Those are the things that make you healthier. And mm -hmm. that's certainly true. But one thing that the research is kind of showing is like, that's not the whole story. And so there's a very real idea that literally just being in an unequal society causes you to mm. i mean i feel that every day <laughs> or in, in the opposite yeah yeah, yeah no it's, it's true right and so there is potentially a mechanism behind it which is basically if you are aware that other people are doing mm -hmm. better than you that mm -hmm. means that you just have more stress and that you're just become sicker and this is kind of radical so i don't know if people think that's really radical because back in the day like in the 1980s they used to think like no it's like mm -hmm. rich people who are managers they're the ones getting sicker because like they're in the managers 
So they're like so stressed yeah. at their job all the time. And so they're getting heart attacks. And then they're like, they did the research mm-hmm. in the UK. It's called the Black Report. <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, never mind. <laughs> Poor people are the ones that are dying. And that, and that like actually kind of revolutionized this area that I take for granted. Like people really thought that managers were getting more heart attacks than poor people because that's who was filling the Mm -hmm. hospital systems even in the uk and then like okay so okay going so you can get at that a ubi has this really like giving people money directly makes is a protective effect from you getting strokes and heart attacks and that's really crazy to me but there's one other reason that it actually gives a good better quality of life too is that it Mm -hmm. does improve efficiencies and when i say that i don't really want to say like it's improving right. efficiencies, how Yang says it, which basically means like he wants to reduce the debt. I mean, like when you give people a little bit of money, they don't go to yeah, right. the ER system anymore because maybe they stay at home or they can afford some personal care helpers or they can pay their volunteers a little bit more money mm-hmm. so they can come and check up on them. Or maybe they you know, have someone to babysit their kid because mm-hmm. they're in the sandwich generation. And so all of a sudden, they're not using these high acuity systems. And we're in a public health care system. So although the government doesn't want to spend money on the high costing services, people don't right. want to be in a fucking hospital, right? Nobody wants to be like homeless yeah. and go and have pneumonia. They want to live at home and not have pneumonia. So there's um, these really like amazing short term improvements. Mm-hmm. We call it upstreaming. And that's really important. And so I've always been, a, even with Andrew Yang, I have this weird, although I'm kind of hating him, I do like still respect that he's bringing UBI because it is something that I actually would say, like if you get rid of just the means-tested welfare, if you just get rid of that shit and give UBI, I'm pretty sure you would actually be improving most working class people's lives with respect to their health care at mm-hmm. minimum. Yeah, especially if you pair it with an actual single-payer healthcare system and then they can spend it on even and other then, shit yeah. <laughs> and exactly that's right and like yeah I, I thought it was going to be a point later but that's the thing when you pair it together it's actually mm. really really wonderful but andrew yang is not about that like in canada when we look at ubi we had a pilot project in finland it's not like it was there to dismantle mm-hmm. the welfare system and Andrew Yang, he was on Vox, and he said, and he talked to Ezra. <laughs> and I favorite. know you guys love Ezra, right? <laughs> well, one of them. <laughs> yeah, and he said, like, he's like, no, I'm not doing a negative uh-huh. income tax. He said this, like, I'm not doing that. But then when you read his platform, you're like, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Everything you're talking about is about, like, this meant, like, you yeah, hate yeah. the federal government. <laughs> yeah, it would be really great if uh, instead of the he government really running everything, we could just have little private bureaucracies that are unaccountable to anyone <laughs> yeah. just run it themselves, you know, authoritatively. Yeah. And of course, you, yes. you need yeah, a consulting course, yeah. company, of course, yep. to find these. You always need this, like, you really fucking need Deloitte and every single... I feel like Andrew Yang's kind of, like, worldview is if you could, like... Multiply consultants <laughs> in every household. A consultant so what, what, on every this table. This is a question I have. <laughs> you like, just, like, keeps, the world a better place. What keeps, like, all exactly. the landlords out there from, like, immediately raising their rents by $1,000 a month? Or whatever. This this is what I don't this understand. Is a, yeah. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. I, I was, I was yeah. thinking about that as well. Um, because landlords are also famously unaccountable. Yeah. And, and are extremely overpowered in the free market. Uh, generally and so like you said prices will just rise and rise and rise 
and they'd be like, oh, you should be grateful. Yang Bucks are saving your life from robots. <laughs> so we're going to collect that $1,000 a month in, in added rent. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's possible that they could do that. The, I think the, the main argument against it is that, oh, well, if they do that, then some other landlords won't raise their rent $1,000. And then you know, they'll have to compete with the landlords that did raise their rent. So the net rise will be so like, like uh, bucks. I think, <laughs> like, I, mean, I guess my, to, for a problem like this, my question yeah, is right, not, yeah. I guess, I guess my, my question is gradually. not so much yeah. why, why will they, but rather how, how on earth would they not? Because. Yeah. 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 I, I think this is what makes Andrew Yang such like a technocrat neoliberal is that you know, he says he's about person-centric and human-centered capitalism, but in his policy reports, he writes about housing. It's just very much mm-hmm. like he cares about free market housing. I think he wants people to move outside mm-hmm. of city centers. Like yeah, the humans that. he wants to center are and rich people. He never actually... <laughs> which is what capitalism yeah, already is. exactly. So. He, do, he does want to center. Mission accomplished. Yeah, which it already does, right? He just wants yeah. to do it slightly different. So he never... I don't think in any kind of his... He talks about efficiencies and things like that, right? But he never actually mm-hmm. talks about cost mm-hmm. drivers. I mean, maybe he can't be everyone who wants to be, but he never really talks about like, oh, why is there more housing for like upper middle yep. class and empty mm-hmm. condos for a million dollars rather than right. for like working class people? And he's like, you know what, <laughs> thousand bucks, and they start making them, which is like, why would, why would he do that? Slumlords are clearly just gonna. Like, nobody wants to be a slumlord, <laughs> you know? Like, no one's building m- buildings to be slumlords <laughs> for cheap rent. They're building, they're being slumlords so they can make... Boys, easy, I got a great business venture for you. We're going to create a high slum. Volume. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's colonialism, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, right. <laughs> one, one really great argument, though, against the uh, landlords raising the rent thing is that um, they're just going to do that anyway. So right. you may as well get people money so that they can afford yeah. the price is, increase that's already going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's it eats at its own right. tail. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys know this, but like mm-hmm. this is kind of blew my mind is like mortgages in the US, you guys can deduct the interest. We can't do that as Canadians. So I was like, so there's people who have loans that own their own homes. And so they're already deducting. Mm-hmm. That means they're getting paid by the government like 300 bucks minimum. If depending how rich they are, they can have even mm-hmm. more. The bigger the house, the bigger the mortgage. They're deducting more money as time goes on. And basically, if you're a renter because you're in poverty, you're already fucked because yeah. no one's deducting right. shit off you. Plus, when you get to UBI, everything you buy is going to be mm-hmm. more expensive because of VAT tax. Well, and you're not yeah. getting any other deductions. And I guess that actually leads to our next point, is that one thing about Andrew Yang is that we're talking about how his welfare is not necessarily like the Canadian Finland examples where they're not removing your health care, social care. Andrew Yang has very specifically said your other benefits are at well, risk yeah. of and, being and I lost think, isn't that, if you're getting yes. Yang bucks. Mm-hmm. You yeah, have to give it up to get the Yang bucks. So if you're on some kind of welfare, then you have to opt out of it in order to get the basic and income that's, payment. That's the essence mm-hmm. of, of UBI to me, right? Is like, I mean, take, I mean, the, the thing is, if you do UBI, it's, you're basically just taking money and atomizing it and just giving it to individuals. And then it's up to them. They take that into the quote free market 
and they're gonna get they're gonna get price gouged. I mean, mm-hmm. the mar- like there's no power to atomized money. It's like yep. that's just spending money, and that's going up against capital. Uh, whereas <laughs> if we have like social yeah, yeah. Sp- like let's say we do single payer healthcare, yeah. I mean the amount of pricing power that you know a single payer has in the market mm-hmm. is enormous. So I would expect actually like prices for drugs are going to be starting like and and uh, you know uh, doctors fees and stuff like that is going to be. I mean, and this is why I think people hate the idea of single payers because you're going to have a lot of, uh, of uh, pricing power on the side of the uh, buyer. And, you know, you can dictate prices and you're mm, like, yes. look, this is what I'm going to pay you. And no one else can pay you, so this is yeah. what you're going to get. I think that's what really scares people. Whereas if you give people a thousand bucks and just go, go on your merry way, you're at the mercy of the market. The market can react immediately and start raising prices on you or... Mm-hmm. Uh, even if they don't raise prices, that's just yep. like a giant spending stimulus package, and it's just right. going to pass through the people and go immediately into the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's good or not is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess a, a question of politics. Yeah. But to me, it just doesn't challenge any of the structural problems of the market because you don't aggregate the you don't aggregate this money in any way. There's no aggregate power to it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I had. Uh, Oh, God. Yeah, okay. So I had some thoughts on how this kind of... It's essentially like an ongoing stimulus package, uh, but for everybody. Uh, and I thought about how within the free market framework, everything is defined by expectations, mm-hmm. you know, and as we talk about, like, it's, you know, capitalism is claims on future income and things, yeah. and so expectations respond to that and vice versa. And if you're capital or capitalist... You have the power to call the shots and define them. And if you're a consumer without much capital, let alone none at all, then you're at the mercy of those decisions, which is based on the expectations. So UBI in this case strikes me as throwing chum in the water and there are sharks and there are little toddlers with little swim fins. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and yeah, yeah, means, you know, yeah. <laughs> It's like, what do you do in that situation? Yeah. I mean, I think, to, I think to some extent, I mean, this this does sound uh, to be to be super uh, pessimistic about it, which I am. Even though, look, I should make it clear. I mean, mm-hmm. as an Asian American, I really appreciate the fact that you know, there's there's a guy who looks like me with my background who's out there being bold in politics. Like, I I totally. on the identity side of this, uh, I can it, you know, I I it is nice for me to see someone like me out there doing this but i think that um you know there Mm. there's it it it, you got to look at what they're actually proposing and i think to some extent um and maybe we should switch Mm -hmm. gears for a sec here uh i feel like he actually falls into a pattern that i'm seeing on the democratic side coming up for 2020 where you've got um you've got kamala like it reminds me of like kamala harris beto and and they're all, you know, Andrew Yang, they're all got, he said like pretty, uh, how do I put it? They're, they're all quite centrist in a way. And, and UBI, mm-hmm. I think Andrew has, has done a good job in sort of distinguishing himself because I think UBI is a much more concrete proposal than the other three have put out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's very clear. You can understand it. But I think ultimately all three of, all four of them are putting out pretty centrist establishment pro-market pro-capital uh 
uh, agendas at a time where I think the elect, the, especially on the left, the electorate's kind of moving harder left, and you know, capitalism uh, is being challenged fundamentally. Yeah. And, and I think that they're sort of pushing uh, a defense of capitalism. And there is, to me, a little bit of a of a new generation. This is a new Pepsi generation. There's like everyone's got a little bit of an identity, uh, non cishet straight white male identity. Mm-hmm. Even Beto, who's a cishet white straight male, has <laughs> got a Spanish surname, right? And he likes to stand on shit. You know, he speaks Spanish. Buttigieg is gay. Kamala Harris is mixed race. Andrew is Asian American. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you? Do you feel that a little bit on the la- on the Democratic side? I'm starting to get a little sense of that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Even Joe Biden is a minor attracted person, so he's a he's a special kind of identity as well. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Um, uh. Yeah, I think um, they're seeing. I mean, it's been very obvious in the last two years that um, everyone, especially young people, are ready for some major change. Yep. And. Uh, universal basic income is definitely like on the probably the most radical change that you can make while keeping everything like fundamentally the same. Yeah, and um, that's why. Yeah, yeah, I think that's why someone like Yang is proposing it. Um, and uh, yeah, but but like even like fight for fifteen. If we were to implement a fifteen dollar minimum wage, um, that would be almost the same benefit as a thousand dollar UBI to like most people. Like if you make a normal retail wage of like $11 an hour, um, Mm -hmm. which like a ton of my friends make $11 an hour currently. Um, and if you work full time doing that, like the pre-tax income that you'd gain from a $15 an hour minimum wage is like $800 Mm -hmm. a month. Pretty much. Yeah. And if you're making the actual minimum wage, you would get $1,200 additional a month. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be a much better change because also it doesn't cost any and money but and that's not tax, it doesn't cost any money to do funded, minimum right? wage <laughs> you yeah. make businesses pay yeah. for it mm-hmm. because they're mm-hmm. the ones that have been benefiting from low wages this whole time all the labor yeah. for sure I, I mean one thing that's kind of makes why andrew yang and most ubi technocrats mm-hmm. ask mm-hmm. backwards is that ultimately they want to give mm-hmm. everybody money to buy their stupid yes shit. Yes. <laughs> yes that's what i usually find like I mean, I'm pro UBI, but whenever I hear about it, it's like we're giving people money so they can buy stupid. So that our ads work on them. <laughs> to increase yeah. the innovative. Yeah, right. <laughs> that doesn't even necessarily add mm. any benefit to anybody, and then that will make society yeah. better. P.S. Robots yeah. are coming. It seems a little disingenuous to me. I mean, like of all like the big, you know, the big large scale mega problems that are like descending upon humanity mm-hmm. automation to me seems to be like maybe kind of a little bit far down the list yeah i, I don't see that yeah, i don't think it's a like big problem, problem that's like descending on humanity because like first of all it could easily be used to like better humanity you can't say the same thing about like climate change <laughs> like oh we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna use climate change for good no we could totally do that with automation yeah, even- so like the thing that you would do would be to gradually eliminate the class system that makes it so automation is bad yeah um, but they obviously don't want to do that. So everyone's just proposing basic income so that you can not have a job anymore, but still like buy all the stuff the robots make, I guess. But I, I, yeah, I also no don't think it's like really going to happen like anytime soon. I think we're way far away from full automation, like really affecting a lot of jobs. Yeah. 
And I used to be one of those people that was like, we need a basic income as soon as possible because the robots are coming. Like I said, I was, I was like a futurology guy and I was like totally one of the like alarmist, like automation is going to destroy the economy type thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I have like really specific criticisms of like Yang's proposal too. like a thousand dollars a month is really not enough to not have a job. So like, I don't know how it's supposed to be a solution to robots taking our jobs. A thousand dollars a month is enough for like, like you should be getting four times that amount easily to get by in most places where people live, especially in like New York city. Will a thousand dollars a month even pay your fucking rent? <laughs> it, right. The whole thing. Not, not only that, it's like, it's if you get rid of other people's mm-hmm. support systems, yep. like snap, <laughs> like, it's, it's even yeah, less. Exactly. And I know there's like fair criticisms of, of those other welfare programs that, you know, there's all this like Byzantine bureaucracy that makes it oppressive to even try to get it, let alone like, you know, whether you could actually get it. Like, you know, there's some people that need it and, and they just don't qualify because there's just all these obstacles in the way. But like, I think that's a, a good argument to fix those problems and not just to upend the whole thing and say, let's get rid of all welfare and have UBI instead. Especially because like a program like snap is going to adjust the amount that it gives you based on the price of food when it goes up, which it does all the time. And a UBI like Yang's Yang's not proposing that it be inflation adjusted or anything like that. It's just going to be a thousand dollars a month. And even if, uh, you know, businesses and landlords don't raise prices and rents like directly in response to it they're always doing that all the time and so eventually a thousand dollars a month is not going to be enough to live even if it were was in the first place i i'm at a place now where i i'm not even sure if we do something like ubi i, I i'm not against um the, the idea of a ubi obviously but like i mean the, the idea of actually just giving people um you know a living wage mm-hmm. but i'm actually wondering do we actually need to fund it because I'm starting to go down the rabbit hole of MMT. I'm turning into yep. one of those oh, people. Yeah. Welcome. Uh, and uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there's, there's actually, we have tea. Uh, people actually. Yeah. I, I mean, look. I mean, I've I've spent I've spent a significant amount of my career in finance and stuff. And mm-hmm. to me, like uh, this is like a whole different topic. But like the idea that for you know every time we talk about something that's social in nature, like uh, I, I guess I would ca- I would identify or categorize UBI as some kind of social spending mm-hmm. um, or, or anything, uh, you know, like the Green New Deal or anything like that, that we immediately get into, and this is something that AOC and them have, have picked up on, is we immediately start talking about, well, how is this going to impact the deficits? Like, how is this? Eventually, <laughs> yes. we're going to have to tax to, you know, we're going to have to put tax drag on the economy. It's going to crash the economy later down the road. We're, we're just, we're just like putting it on our children's shoulders and, and mortgaging their futures for our selfishness. Right. Mm. And I, I, it's just, it's just kind of strange to me. Cause I'm like, you know, we've spent, I think 4.8 trillion on the two wars on Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm like, yo, we've never talked about how Who's, how are we going to pay for this in the future? I've never paid a war yeah, tax. Yeah, we spent a trillion no dollars on a jet race- that decapitates people who eject from it. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, there, you, you, you could spend endlessly uh, on the de- defense side, and no one ever is talking about, yeah. well, you know, how is this going to affect tax? You know, that how are we eventually going to, aren't we just burying our children in a giant deficit hole that they'll never yeah, be Yeah, it's weird. It's almost as if like, those obje- objections are totally empty and just a, you know, grasp at straws to, uh, to say, no, we can't have any social <laughs> programs. You'll just have to be poor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Daddy fought his neighbors, so you can't have food. To be fair, those F-35s are good assets to have, and they don't depreciate, and there's no maintenance costs or anything like that either. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'd, I'd be down for a Manitoba-style <laughs> helicopter. Like, truly, let's just put some money in a helicopter and just <laughs> and just have Amazon drones deliver a thousand bucks to your back porch. <laughs> Yes. Every month. That is Unfunded. Such an no funding. We thing just to do say. it. You know? Yeah. I would be down for it that. It always comes back to helicopters. Just have jets and they just parachute <laughs> does, yeah. money to everybody. <laughs> yeah. that's, like a, that's how an American socialism should be, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. That and sewers. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole funding yeah. thing. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, like, if you don't know what MMT is, it's basically uh, an extension of an older theory called chartalism which is a theory of money, and it, it essentially says that money comes from the state, the state issues money, um, and it does so so that it can pay its employees, whether they're bureaucrats or uh, soldiers, and in order to make the money worth something, they levy taxes on uh, people that are not their employees, so essentially saying that you owe us you know, some amount of money, and so in order to get that money, they have to perform services for the bureaucrats or soldiers. And MMT kind of takes that into the 21st century and uh, merges it with modern finance and the existence of central banks, which came about, what was it, 18th century? A while ago. Who cares? Uh, (laughs) um, And so it's essentially saying, like, we don't have to collect taxes in order to do government spending because the government is the one that's creating all the money so they can just create money and spend it and it doesn't matter if they spend more than they uh collect because uh you kind of have to do that in order to have an economy because the money that's not collected back is what's currently circulating and so it kind of has a built-in um rejection of of the whole how are we going to pay for it thing which is it doesn't matter how you pay for it because <laughs> right. the government can just print money. So yeah. money is just a fiction. It's just a thing that we use to get people to do stuff. So like we should just do that. And, and then of course, once you get past that, that point of how do we pay for it? The next argument is, well, okay, sure. But if we print a bunch of money, it's going to cause inflation. Um, and that's where I start to disagree with MMT because they say that public spending is not inflationary, but only up to the point where you have full employment. Um, but I don't think that's true. I don't think there's really any evidence to support that. Um, you know, inflation can coincide with increases in um, money supply, but it also uh, doesn't sometimes. Um, in fact, it usually doesn't. Usually inflation just happens all the time. <laughs> um, and like there's like I, I could get like way into it. I mean, and he will be kind of getting if off you don't track. stop him yeah but um <laughs> but i mean basically like inflation is when prices increase and the people that are in, in control of prices are businesses so like why would the government issuing money cause inflation when it's the businesses that are doing it right 
I think it's more more likely is as inflation happens, the government has to issue more money so that we can pay for the inflated prices. I don't think it happens the other way around. I think it's business's fault that inflation happens because they're the ones that are doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but and also I think something like uh, you know something like MMT used to finance um, you know a mega program mm-hmm. like the Green Green New Deal yeah. uh, is fundamentally different than UBI in the sense that UBI mm-hmm. you're, we're really talking about people paying their rent, paying their childcare uh, provider, buying groceries, stuff like that. Whereas Green New Deal is like, uh, yeah, we're gonna you know we're going to start um, rebuilding everything. We're <laughs> <laughs> rebuilding everything and we're gonna you know it's like we're gonna start buying solar panels mm-hmm. and we're gonna start funding you know build you know building more nuclear reactors and stuff like that mm-hmm. like it's not about buying groceries right and the the idea be i think it's more the idea of like an mmt um or like an uh, i don't want to say unfunded but like a deficit finance yeah uh mm-hmm. stimulus uh, uh, uh or you know broad-based social infrastructure spending program, things like this, to me, it's like, I, I think of it like, I, I want there to be uh, a, a candidate who's like taking something like the Green New Deal, but not calling it that, because I, I freaking hate that name. I don't know why everything has to reference something from the past. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know when the last time you all like traveled to China was, but when I go there, I, I went there late last year, I was like, we need to gut renovate America. This is ridiculous. Yeah. I'm like, th- this is China. China's like, China is still a poor country. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how they have all this fantastic shit. Yeah. Like, government works better. The infrastructure's gleaming. People mm-hmm. are out there picking up trash. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, people, it's, it's, I'm like, dude, we need to renovate our country. I wish that there would be a candidate who came out and was just like, let's gut renovate America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I would question too if that's all going so well for them, are they really a poor country? Yeah. And if things are going poorly for us, are we really that wealthy? Yeah, I th- I think that's a good question. Yeah. According to the GDP, yes. Right. Good old <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Cuz I know you guys love GDP yeah. as mm-hmm. a measurement of everything. One of my favorite things. I, I mean, I do I do wish that uh, along with Ezra Klein and Noah Smith and Matt Brunig. Yeah. <laughs> I think China's interesting cuz it does give it does help you visualize like kind of what what mm-hmm. we could maybe accomplish if we were just willing to spend more. And uh and I think it does yeah. come down mm-hmm. to spending. And I, we're just so damn cheap mm-hmm. when it comes to allowing the public sector to get anything done. And then the private sector, all they do is just give us more consumer mm-hmm. choice. They, you know, provide us with like yeah. more granite countertops and more condos and stuff like this. But nothing of the public realm. Nothing, you know. Yeah, we're too Protestant here. We Everyone has to work for everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think for China as well, because so much of the industry is government controlled, even ones that are getting privatized, they sometimes don't even become more than 50% privatized. And I think there's a lot of value in that kind of real partnership rather than this fake partnership that we have of the public sector mm-hmm. and the private, sorry, public and private here, where it's mm-hmm. usually just like, we're going to give you low interest rates and you can do whatever the fuck you want. 
And if the banks crash, we'll bail you out. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Whatever kind of fucking partnership that is. If there is, I would say if there is, I'm just speculating here, uh, but if there is um, a cultural difference that, that is causing this this extreme difference between the way China approaches spending and the way the, the U.S. does, um, I'm speculating here, so I could to- be totally wrong, but... I just don't think cash means as much as it does to Americans as it does in China. Like people are fearful of cash over there. The second they have cash, they want to buy something real with it. Like there, I think people still think much more in terms of (laughs) real assets, um, like real physical, tangible wealth. And you don't see a lot of imagery around cash. And, and even there's like a famous movie that I, I'll link it in the show notes, but there's a, there's a movie about like this guy, it's kind of like a Brewster's Millions kind of tale where he needs to spend, you know, like $6 billion or something <laughs> insane. Uh, and he can't, like, he just can't get rid of the cash. Every time he does like a shitty investment, right. it pays off, you know? <laughs> and <clears throat> it's like this weird thing, like this panic of like, I'm having too much cash and they don't have any mm-hmm. faith in cash. And they... You know, there's just not this um, celebration of money, the the money commodity, as there mm-hmm. is for actual commodities. Whereas I think in the U.S., we still have a very like cash is king. Like when we see green, we get excited. You know, uh, we really right. like money. Yeah, I mean, my first idea for spending a six billion dollars was fill a pool with it and swimming. Yeah. <laughs> That's obviously yeah. the best thing to do yeah, with money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Or buy a bunch of gold coins and swim in that yeah. instead. Very squeeze my so, but the only thing about America as well yeah, is yes, they also love yes, land. Yeah. Land and cash go hand in hand for sure. I think it goes, I don't know what you guys think, but I, I, there, there's that one thing, uh, you know, in the Marxist literature about the transition from CMC exchange, where you go from commodity, you go to the market to, to liquidate it to cash and then to convert it back into another commodity that you need. It's a, it's a trading of commodities. Whereas once you get into more like a financialized capital, it's MCM. Like I have money. I go and exchange it for, I, I turn that into commodities so that I can make more money from it. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I don't want to overapply that to like the Chinese, but I, you know, Chinese are just really fearful of, I don't know how to put it, but like money's not something you want to be in. Uh, every time they see money, they're just like, yeah, this is not, I got to, I got to turn this into a house as soon as possible. You know, they'd rather be holding an empty house that they can't even rent out versus having just bank, you know, having cash in the bank. Yeah, I mean, I think the yeah. one of the main unique aspects of capitalism versus other systems that exist currently and did in the past is is just that we essentially let money govern us versus money just being a, another tool in the kit of governance. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't have anything yeah. else for that. <laughs> I was percolating in but, that. Uh, I just yeah. gave up on it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was just mm-hmm. going to say. I, I, well, again, we have to go back so I don't know how we Andrew got Yang there. And yeah. dunking on Andrew <laughs> Yang. <laughs> so basically, we went to... Because we went through a lot of his policies. Did we miss any policies about why Andrew Yang sucks? He is pro-Medicare for all, which is which is interesting. Is that... This is where his like weird consultancy, technocratic nonsense comes in. He's like, Everyone's I want Medicare it. for all. Because, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think he has to say it because everyone's all about Medicare for all in that area. But he's like... We need to like create efficiencies. But what the thing about efficiencies in the public sector and healthcare, it's really just a code word for I want to pay labor less. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's all it really comes down to. And even for the federal mm-hmm. government, it's the same thing. He's like, he wants to remove 15% or 20% of the federal government. He's like, I want to fire people more than uh-huh. Donald Trump wants to fire people. 
and I want mm-hmm. to put AI so they can fire those people and support the other people. And then mm-hmm. I just want to like kind of like get rid of people's salaries and everything will work out better. I will give him credit on the healthcare thing, though. He does specifically say we should have a single payer healthcare system. Yeah. yeah. Unlike all the other Democrats who are trying to camouflage their opposition to single payer healthcare by right. saying we should have universal healthcare, which yeah. just means they want Obamacare too. Yeah. Um, and the ACA basically. Yeah, they want ac- universal access insurers. to healthcare, yeah. which means there's <laughs> right. going to be a paywall there, in front yeah. of it. There's ten different platforms for Medicare for the U.S. I don't really know all 10 of them because about eight of them or seven of them are so stupid. Yeah, one of them is good and the other ones are trash. Yeah, yeah basically like the first three are very similar, which are basically Medicare for all. That's how one would suspect as one payer system is, but the rest are shit. But yeah, so like he just kind of sneaks in this consulting shit in like healthcare and everywhere. He's like, you know what? Deloitte, they'll yeah. fix our problems. He's actually literally <laughs> proposing that, right? To yeah. have a management consulting firm go in and, yeah, and, and sort um, of down right, right size. If you, yeah. if someone says right size, I'm, I'm yeah. not listening anymore. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. So for the Canadian government, we were you know, checking accountability for the federal legislation. And there was about a million something dollars being spent inappropriately in different areas. And... I think like, and we're talking about people spending like tens of thousand dollars, maybe inappropriately, or three hundred dollars inappropriately, and the aggregate mm-hmm. of all of this worked out to be like a million dollars. So it was significant, mm-hmm. but not significant to any person that they're going to get like fired. And mm-hmm. then the consulting agency billed like eight million dollars. <laughs> so, consulting <laughs> makes firms sense. they fucking suck. Like they make no sense. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think we're getting closer to the end. I thought maybe we can talk about the other policies of Yang. And when I say the other, I mean, like, the dark policies of Yang, which is things like yeah. talking to Joe Rogan makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> that is um, a arguing with Ben Shapiro <laughs> over circumcision. Oh, yeah, circumcision. Because <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's really, it's really important that... Did that already happen? Do I have to watch that? Uh, I don't think anyone like needs to watch, to watch that. that. Yeah, no, I'm actually pretty supportive of him having gone on like Rogan and and whatever. Like, yeah, I, I guess I, I guess to me it's kind of like that's still to me where the battleground for the politics of the of the younger millennial generation still lays. Like, I'm just saying, I, I don't think avoiding all the media channels that kind of like has Trump stain on it is necessarily the way you want to go because that's just to me conceding ground and uh, you know I. To me, I think the more the more of these spaces that he goes into, the better. I just think he has to watch out. So, no, no, I think I heard about yeah about his you know, I mean you mentioned it to him before that he knows that these platforms have currencies and it's specifically currency with white white voters. So where were we? Oh, I was just saying. I think uh, so. Jay had mentioned uh, you know Yang going on like. Joe Rogan and stuff like that. I guess to me, I, I, I'm kind of glad he's doing that because I don't see any reason to surrender those spaces. I think those are those are like media, sort of these interstitial media spots where I think that's where the you know the politics of younger millennials and and uh, 
I think that's where a lot of things are being decided. I see, I see no reason not to participate and to and to bring yourself into those spaces. I, it's dangerous if you don't know mm-hmm. yeah. that you know you're that that there is a reactionary element to a lot of that stuff. But I don't see any reason to to, yeah. s- to surrender yeah. those spaces. Joe Rogan doesn't seem hostile like you know like a Fox News person is. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, I feel like Joe Rogan is the gateway drug to the alt right. But I don't, I don't really have right, yeah. anything against Joe Rogan, if that makes sense. I just like when I listen to him, I just really yeah. feel like he's a guy who will talk to literally anybody. And when I say literally anybody, I mean like literally <laughs> anybody. And it's hard for me to fault him mm-hmm. because I feel like this is lame. He has a good heart, <laughs> you know, like I don't think he's like mm, a complete yeah. piece of shit. But he doesn't understand necessarily that he's talking to complete pieces of shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he's just a dumb guy that wants yeah. to smoke weed yeah. and do mushrooms oh. on the radio. Right. I know a lot fine. of like left book really totally hates fine. Joe Rogan. He could he could have been a he could have been a Brian right. Quinby in another life. <laughs> so like I but I think there's some um, a lot of valid stuff that Tina's saying is that like Joe Rogan and those folks I mean we think of young people, young white people, mm-hmm. young white guys are using these platforms. But I think a lot mm-hmm. of older, you mm-hmm. know, maybe like the forty five age range of people are there and they're blasting people on YouTube comments or whatever as well and wasting their time. And so Yang Mm -hmm. understands that if he wants to get the vote, he knows that he gets got, he's got to get older white people to vote. And that's why he's talking to truckers. He's going to get them before they get on the complete neo-Nazi track. And then he also wants to get the young people before they go to that crazy alt-right. Like he understands that you got to catch people early. Otherwise they're going to miss the Yang train and the Yang game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a fair remark, actually. I think that's a good way to kind of understand that he's attempting to stand on a threshold of, I guess, political receptivity. Yeah. And yeah. I'd rather these mm-hmm. people listen and to I, him I than know Jordan some people that, that listen to Joe Rogan, and they're not, like, right-wing people. They just they just yeah. like the show. They don't necessarily pick mm-hmm. up on the politics. I mean, you know, I'm sure yeah. they pick up on some of them, but it's not like... You know, you listen to Joe Rogan once and yeah, you're a Nazi. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, does it? I mean, does it piss you guys <laughs> off at all that like they've basically they've basically claimed this term red pilling, where you know for oh, the for the far yeah. right, where I'm like, you know, to come to like a leftist or Marxist perspective on thing is the ultimate red pill, right? Like, right? I, I, why to me, well, especially because the red pill really in the sh- Matrix represents transitioning yeah. to a woman. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like really fucking stupid that it is used by people who think you know, gender is biological and right. stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so not being red pilled. I think to be true, I, I, I feel like the, yeah. the idea or the, the experience of red pilling is an important one, but like, why, why is it, you know, owned by those that are espousing sort of like these sort of hard right perspectives? I'm like, the red pilling should be to me leading people towards far more leftist conclusions. So I don't know. I think, yeah. I think yeah. that's where I do. Cause we I mean, actually with, see the you know, matrix trying to take you know trying to get that narrative out onto platforms like rogan's where it's like people are pretty radically open-minded but then what are they opening their minds to uh you know i mean if they're willing to accept that the pyramids were built ten thousand years ago and were giant electrical generators you know i think they can buy into the idea that we probably need more wait uh, okay excuse me one second is that really a conspiracy theory (laughs) yeah seriously that's yeah 
Yeah, Rogue, it oh, was on Rogan. Okay. <laughs> Hold on, is what a conspiracy theory? We, the, we missed it. That the, that the pyramids are 10,000 years old and they're, they're ancient uh, electrical generators. You know, stuff like that. Like, like stuff <laughs> nice. like that. Like, people will listen with open mind to that kind of stuff. Like, as yeah. I said, Joe Rogan will literally listen to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, but mm -hmm. why can't we talk about MMT? You know, like, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, Joe, have you ever heard of Murray Bookchin? <laughs> <laughs> He's really trippy, man. You would like it. You should uh, take some mushrooms and read. Uh, no, like, yeah, exactly. Uh, like, post scarcity anarchism. Why, why aren't you two on Joe Rogan talking about the horrors of the Dutch East India Company? You know, like that. That's a that's a red pilling event if there ever was one. I think our our invite yeah. got lost in the mail. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I guess one one um, thing about also Andriang is like on more of the Asian spaces, is you know we talk about like mm -hmm. systemic racism. I mean you know it kind of affects us mm -hmm. once in a while. So we talk about systemic racism, and so Andrew Yang is this like weird character, in the sense that although he's a he's clearly like a very proud Taiwanese second generation guy, like. I don't doubt that at all, mm -hmm. but he definitely goes out of his way not to talk about identity politics, where, like, it's kind of funny mm -hmm. that you have, like, Kamala mm -hmm. Harris being like, I'm Jamaican, I smoke weed, and, like, all kinds of, like, stupid shit, <laughs> and then Andrew Yang is like, no, I'm not going to talk about, yeah. like, I love my bubble tea or some shit like that. I mean, he really, now that I think about it, he really <laughs> should corner the bubble tea market, but, <laughs> like, he goes, like, out of his way to, like... Mm -hmm. So, uh, Mr. Yang, what are your favorite <laughs> exactly. Korean dramas to watch? <laughs> I'm sure he loves sassy girls, let's be honest. <laughs> are BTS, you, are BTS, you a stand? You <laughs> That's right. B okay, BTS gang versus Yang gang. Who would win in a fight? Let's be honest. <laughs> uh, oh, shit. I think BTS people would be a little more um, physically mobile. <laughs> yeah, I think that, yeah, they'd be physically mobile. Yes. There'd be a lot of biting yes. on their part, too. Scratch your eyes out. So yeah, like he doesn't, and we kind of talked about his economic policy, is that he doesn't really look, he tries to not do the deep dive into capitalism or racism or sexism. Yeah, on the few like um, non like economic stuff that he talks about, it doesn't seem so good. Like the, the main thing that sticks out to me is like uh, his whole take on border security. He, he just sort of like agrees with the premise that there's a southern border crisis. And that we need to do something about it. And then his whole thing is like designed to be like a fairly punitive immigra immigration system. Like he thinks it should take 18 years to become a naturalized citizen. Because if you're born here, then you don't become like a legal adult until you're 18. Which that makes sense, of course. That's actually very radical compared to most Western countries. Yeah. Wait, what, what part of that? The waiting for eighteen years to get citizenship. Oh, that's that's just, that's he's saying like yes. if after you're, what, <laughs> after you're eighteen or after eighteen years. Basically, he's like anti anchor baby. Yeah, he wants a path to that's citizenship, but he wants it to take eighteen years, which is an insane he's amount of time. Anti anchor babies. He's anti you know like Russians, mainland Chinese coming. Yeah, having kids here. And then going back mm. home and the kids not really oh, knowing Canada yeah. or the U.S. To be fair, we should just do that for um, everyone. Yeah. Even if they were born on the soil, you know, you're, you're not real until you're 18. Just go yeah. way back with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and once you're real, then you get your UBI. Is I guess that's the, f the, the, the view that he sees it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that, that's another issue that I have with his UBI proposal is that it it only kicks in until you're 18. So like, if you have kids, you don't get money for that. Like, you don't get money to support them. So it kind of punishes parents. Oh, that's like an arch conservative thing, though, because the, the last thing they want to do is encourage people right, to right. have kids. <laughs> um, instead, he would rather yeah. uh, propose that everyone stay married, because oh, that's, right. that's one of his policies: yeah. is marriage counseling for all. Marriage counseling for all, <laughs> okay. can't which make he frames as like a problem of like, oh, if you're uh, the child of a single parent, then your economic outcomes yeah. are worse, and it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. sure, I agree with that. It's true. Uh, but the solution, of course, is uh, not to like <laughs> yeah. give single parents money, but to make sure that they stay married. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of the policy is seems to me to be based around like what what would I give as advice to my friends? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, uh, like I think I think that I'm very pro my friends going to see marriage counselors. I don't want you. I really like you as a couple. I'm gonna throw that on my platform. Marriage counseling for everyone. I mean, the way I uh, thought was like, oh, yeah, like I, I have a really great family. Everyone should have a really great family. He's probably thinking, hey, yeah, I right. get dividends for like twelve thousand dollars a year at minimum. Everyone should have twelve thousand dollars at minimum. It worked out well for me. Yeah. <laughs> I have a consulting firm do like audits for me. Uh, Works out for me. I'm gonna consult for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Anything you do also yeah. works for the um, government. You guys want to do just? Go ahead. You guys want to just share your final thoughts on uh, on Yang or anything else? Anything you want to plug? Oh, or I uh, whatever. I, I got this uh, stuff about Venture for America. I looked into it a little bit on uh, Charity Navigator mm -hmm. um, because it's it's a nonprofit. Venture for America is like a a firm that Andrew Yang started, um, and the idea is supposed to be that it, it trains fellows to like start businesses to revitalize um, downtrodden parts of America like uh, Detroit and uh, New Orleans. Um, so I looked at the financials because if you're a nonprofit, you have to declare your financials publicly. Um, so it's not rated currently on Charity Navigator because it only has six years of data. And you have to have seven to get a rating on there. But it has like the individual IRS 990 returns. And uh, so uh, they, I think they yeah, take really in like, uh, I there. think it was $2 million. And uh, they only give out $400,000 in grants, which I thought was supposed to be the point of a charity. Um, and then they spend mm -hmm. 600000 paying their board members. Uh, including, I think it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars for Yang himself. Crazy. Um, they Whoa. spend seven hundred thousand dollars on travel, uh, two million dollars in paying other employees, four hundred fifty thousand dollars on events, three hundred thousand dollars on meals. That's crazy. And one point four million on other fees, just like a generic category, which are like they're supposed to be detailed in like another another form you attach but uh they didn't have any of that so <laughs> it's just like mystery money <laughs> and uh it's very intimately connected to quicken loans uh because a lot of the like seed capital they got was from dan gilbert who is the founder of quicken loans and uh, a lot of the companies that they're sending people to run are actually like subsidiaries of quicken loans like um Detroit Venture Partners, which is like a lending firm for Detroit, owned by Quicken Loans, and uh, Doodle Home, which is a uh, another arm of Quicken Loans. Um, yeah, so very weird stuff. Yeah, 
That is fucking weird. So all that, and they're only giving out 400,000. Yeah. I think this in... shows like how Andrew Yang is extremely well connected to the capitalist class and the elite class mm-hmm. because it just shows like you can literally show up and you can just ask for people for these stupid amounts of money that other people can't <laughs> dream about. And then yes. mm-hmm. most nonprofits, they don't work this way. And that's why like a lot of nonprofits that do this kind of work, they're very clearly directed for a specific type of work and a specific type of person. Anyone who's been to nonprofits, you know, you can go to these nice ones and they always will say like, oh, board members and CEO of this bank, they're going to come in and they're like, you can just go there and spend 400 bucks and you can network with these people. Also, where's the efficiency? Uh, if you're taking in that much and you're only giving out 400K, where's the efficiency? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, it's, it's probably efficient for him. He probably he's put very yeah. little work once it started. It's efficiency yeah. for everyone else. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for me, it's like, you no. know, 700000 in travel expenses and oh, $250,000 right? in board and like, board members. Yeah, does he have any plans to automate this business? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have an automation solution that revolves around guillotines. Does that count? <laughs> like, come on. Chris, you got any... Uh, you got any f- conclusory thoughts on uh, on Yang? Yeah, um, yeah, I agree with you that it's really important to get more uh, Asian Americans visible in politics, whether it's electoral or other kinds of organizing or anything. So, like, I got to recognize that that's important in, in, in respect to what he's doing, what he's trying, the fact that he's getting traction um, with anybody at all. And so that's really cool. Um, I kind of put in the notes, like, from an electoral point of view, it'd be great to see an Asian American presidency, as long as it's not an Elaine Chow, uh, yes. Mitch McConnell's yes. wife. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are you saying you don't want Bobby Jindal as president? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> right. Um, Maybe Dinesh D'Souza as vice president? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, right. Um yeah, social democracy with D'Souza characteristics. <laughs> um, <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> and then also just the, the question of um, what I'm calling here in my notes, the like long tail of oppression, which is like all the people who inhabit jobs that are kind of comprise the capitalist coordinating class and enforcement class, like... Uh, landlords, um, certain kind of financial works, um, cops, etc., who will also be getting these kinds of cash infusions under like a universal basic income plan. And I never thought about cops getting it. God, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I did want to real quick just say uh, what I think we should do as basic income because it's easy to criticize things, but. Um, Let's let's yeah, be brave sure. and actually like say what we should do. So, yeah. if I were to design a basic income policy, it would be uh, it starts at four thousand dollars a month because that's enough for almost everyone in the country to live. Um, it should get a like an annual or biannual uh, cost of living adjustment so that once mm-hmm. inflation happens, uh, the amount that you get changes. Uh, it shouldn't be funded by anything because that doesn't make any sense. But there should be a wealth tax that comes with it because uh, I hate rich people and I think they should have less money. And uh, um, (laughs) it should it should be for all U.S. residents, not just citizens. And you should Mm -hmm. get it if you did not submit an income like a tax return 
that declares over like the top quartile of income, like $150,000 or whatever. Uh, if you make that much money, you don't need it. And if you lose your job making that amount of money, you're not in so much danger that you're going to need basic income like immediately. You're probably going to have a lot in savings and you'll be fine. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's my idea for it. For, I mean, nice I'm, I'm going to jump on there too. Uh, I mean, 4000 sounds great. Obviously, the, for me, even $1,000 is fine because $1,000 will greatly impact a lot of the people that I've worked with or people that I know significantly. But that $1,000 has to be real. The VAT tax, I'm not really too worried about per se because I'm Canadian, so I'm just so used to paying more than 10% in every single transaction I ever do. But I would like to see something that really looks at income inequality. And so that means, you know, closing corporate taxes, closing, you know, high income tax earners. That's where this money should be coming. And they should be okay with it too, especially those that are like filthy rich, the one percenters, because they're probably going to be getting this tax back through other ways anyway. And that's me coming from more of a like a social democratic uh, area. And then the other part is that just because something UBI is there, it doesn't mean the other areas of governance needs to be dismantled. If anything, it should be there to strengthen them. So like for things like childcare, it's clearly, and I'm pretty sure Andrew Yang is not against childcare because he's supposed to be human centered. UBI would really help things like with childcare. If you don't have publicly supported childcare in a rural area, UBI is a wonderful way to get your neighbors to help you out and you can actually pay them, things like that. So I see a lot of value to UBI. And I'm really happy that it's kind of not just spoken about on left book or Twitter. People are actually having a real conversation about it because I don't really see a revolution coming anytime soon. So I do... And I, I'm also only in public policy. It's where my forte is. And I do think these will help people. But I don't think necessarily Andrew Yang is the one that should be spearheading it if it does come to fruition. I think his heart's in the right place. He's just a very privileged person. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. And he's all, I think the thing with privileged people is that they tend to operate within the boundaries of what's sort of acceptable and, and possible. They, they talk about what's possible, right? That's their constant thing they, they they have a sense of what's politically possible because they're uh at the social level of the gatekeepers i think mm-hmm. for me the thing about andrew yang it's not so much his specific policies that i care about because one i don't think they're going to be implemented uh anytime soon i think it gives us a glimpse about you know what we're looking at in the future and ubi has i think there is a sort of radical element to it though it's not a radical proposal I think it suggests that people are open to fairly radical uh, platforms. And the mm. thing I do like about Andrew Yang is that, and he spoke really uh, eloquently about um, you know anti-Asian sentiment as being like perhaps the you know the the next the next thing the next phenomenon that's going to happen after uh, Islamophobia. And mm. he's saying that you know xenophobic sentiment is always something that's that 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 is stoked when there's job loss and when there's insecurity, economic insecurity in the country. And I think he's done this admirable job 
of offering a narrative that says, you know, don't blame immigrants and, you know, don't blame Jews and Mexicans and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, realize that there's a lot of structural things like automation that that's your real enemy here. And you can't persecute auto- automation. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a perfect, uh, you know, uh, narrative about it. But I do think he's trying to do something where he's like, you know, we can we can have this sort of like populist fears about our security. We can we could talk about mm-hmm. our insecurities as as Americans and and um, as wage earners in America. But we don't necessarily have to find someone to blame. We can find to a, blame, right? We can find a thing, like we can find a, a, a development, a um, mm-hmm. you know, a, a something about technology or something about you know whatever. I think he's trying it. I, I yeah. hope there's promise in that. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with Yang. Um, he's a he's a he's a he's a version 1.0 of something I'd like to see uh, continue to develop along those lines. Absolutely, and I think you're right that he's helping to frame things in a healthier way. He's saying there's a problem and that we can fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. which is good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. it's good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only part that I find problematic when he does this is that uh-huh. he sometimes, like, I think he's literally said, he wouldn't, I don't think he said it in the Breakfast Club, but he's literally has said that racism is really just a symptom of economic downturn. Who boy. <laughs> like, that's why he, Historically like, I think, inaccurate. you know, he's talking to these older truckers, right? And he'd be like, oh, yeah, these older yeah. truckers, they're really nice guys, and, um, you know. Yeah, you know how rich people aren't racist at all? Exactly. <laughs> racism is inverse to uh, to your income, mm. right? Isn't that how it yeah. works? Yeah. <laughs> that's what. That's yeah. why Africa was such a great place. Uh, like you yeah, said, I used to be racist, and then I got a new job, and now I'm not anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like I said, I mean, ver- it's it's you know, it's not perfect, but I do think that it represents at least some some attempt to steer the discussion mm-hmm. when there's still, mm-hmm. you know, because I think there is a lot of room to maneuver right now. Um, the the Overton window being what it is. And, uh, you know, I just think, I just think that the, the idea of, of confronting the real problems, and I think automation is like a real problem, probably not the, the biggest one, but it is a real mm-hmm. problem. And, and the more we're, yeah, I mean, the real problem with it to... is that it'll be used to push wages down. We're still going to have employment. It's just going to be, you're going to be paid less because employers don't need you as much. Yeah, pretty much. Right, right. Or, and, mm-hmm. or and even if they do need you, they can just scare you with the prospect of it. So so see, they're already saying like, oh oh, you want fifteen dollars an hour? Well, uh, you know, touchscreen can do your job. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I would I would just hire like if I was like I would just hire like a robot worker, even if it was terrible. Like the robot worker <laughs> was like way worse and more expensive than human capital. I would still have the robots around just to make people think that the robots can take their job. Oh know? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And award it with all the employee of the month. Like every employee of the month is always a <laughs> shitty robot. You need to and give this robot yeah. a really cute name, though. Yeah, yeah. and like, all the employees like, I don't think the robot's actually that good. Well, you know, we'll see. Good job, workaholic. So, anyway, good employee of the month. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you have yeah, to like. I think we need a, a robot picture. to like uh, take on all the shit duties that no one else wants to do. Get coffee for everyone and all that stuff. Yeah, that's how it should be. Um, they can yeah. just be the intern. <laughs> We should do emotional uh, robots that do emotional labor. Yeah, that's what <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> that's what robots would be great at. That's yeah, how you defeat the patriarchy. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Robots against patriarchy. I love that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Should we call it there? 
Yeah, definitely. Sounds sure. Good to me, yeah. That's our episode for this week. As usual, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and hit subscribe if you like Escape from Plan A. I want to add a quick postscript about a video of Andrew Yang speaking to an Asian American group about the danger of racialized populism and how he fully expects hate crimes to spike against Asians living in America, uh, along with the rise of Sinophobic rhetoric. Uh, the, the Sinophobic rhetoric of the kind which Steve Bannon has been pushing as a central theme to his new nationalist movement. This is already a reality, something confirmed by the Los Angeles Human Rights Commission. So I want to applaud Andrew Yang for bringing this up and for steering a populist anger towards a more pragmatic and less hateful politics. We'll be back next week with another episode of Escape for Planning. Bye for now. Uh, so now that I'm running for president, like I've learned more about the Asian American place in society. Uh, and one thing that scares the heck out of me is that this country is heading towards becoming majority minority by 2045. That's 27 years from now. Uh, and so there's a very happy notion in some quarters that the country will just become more tolerant as it gets more diverse. You just figure that math will take care of it, because if you have enough people, everyone will just have to get along. Unfortunately, that is not really the way things play out if you look at historical examples. Uh, there are very, very few examples in human history of a dominant racial or ethnic group giving up its dominance over time. That actually is not normal. That's not normal behavior. Um, and so if you look at what's happening right now in this country, you can see an increasingly insecure white majority becoming more and more hostile, truly. Uh, and who is going to be the boogeyman of the next 10 to 20 years? Who's going to be the great rival to the United States in the eyes of American society? China, that's right. And so what do you think the attitude is going to be over time for the shrinking, insecure white majority that's losing their jobs for, let's say, Chinese Americans or Asian Americans? I, I don't, I'm like, I personally, I said to a group at Harvard, I think we're one generation away from falling into the same camps as the Jews who were attacked in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, like uh, just a couple months ago. It's like we're probably one generation away from Americans shooting up a bunch of Asians saying like, you know, damn the Chinese because there's a giant Cold War or even more with China. That is the great danger that I fear that my children are going to grow up in. I have two young boys, six and three. Uh, they're American, I'm American. And Asian Americans historically have not been highly politically active or energized. Asian Americans vote at lower levels, they donate at lower levels. And because of this, the dominant political parties do not care about Asian Americans.